0: Welcome to Bible Shots. It's great to have you with us today. Uh, We'll be hearing a short 20-minute talk on an extract from the Bible, and followed by some Q&A where you can ask your questions. Uh, You can do that by hitting the Q&A button just below. I'm Grace, and I work for City Bible Forum, and I'm dialing in from Sydney. Uh, We're here to help people ask the bigger questions in life. And today we are continuing our series in Bible Shots of You Do You. It's our society being obsessed with the idea of carving out an identity for yourself. Uh, We love being self-authentic, unique and autonomous, and we hunger for that freedom to make our own choices, to be true to ourselves. It doesn't matter what people say about you, you just do you. So, so far we've looked at freedom, the foundation of the You Do You idea, and the topic of sex, which is one expression of that idea. And our topic today is pleasure. Uh, So the idea of live your best life now, never let go of your dreams, do whatever makes you happy. And I'm really looking forward to hearing our speaker unpack the notion of pleasure, uh, that finds deep resonance in us, but also um, he'll highlight some of the blind spots that we might have about pleasure. And our speaker is Stephen McAlpine. He's a cultural commentator, author, blogger, and pastor, and the Bible passage we'll be looking at today is Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 13 to 21, and I'll share my screen so that you can read along with me. All right, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Steve, over to you.
1: Uh, great. Uh, thanks, Grace. It's good to be with you from Perth. I'd uh, say the pleasure is all mine, but here I am talking about pleasure today. So <laughs> we've looked at uh, the last few weeks, we've looked at exactly what Grace said in this You Do You series. What does it mean uh, to live in the kind of world we are living in um, where uh, the freedom that we have to be ourselves is is underpins everything we think about it's our default perspective and look this week we're looking at pleasure and each week I've uh, it's been a game of uh, two halves a bit like a soccer match uh, the first half I've looked at the cultural moment we live in uh, dealing with that topic and the second thing I've done is to look at the biblical response to it so I'm going to do that again today so I'm going to extend a bit of time on the issue and then an extended bit of time on uh what we're actually on about. So uh, that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, but first thing I want to do is uh, show you this uh, picture here. I was in Target quite a few years ago, and I looked at the back wall of the Target I was in, and it had these words on the wall: the vision statement of Target, which said, "Every Australian has the right to look good and feel good about the way they dress and live. Every Australian has the right." to look good and feel good about the way they dress and live. And I think at this stage we were looking for a preamble to our Australian constitution, and we could have done worse than pick that one because that feels like that's the guts of what we're talking about, that Australians not only uh, would have the opportunity to look good and feel good about the way they dress and live, Target is telling us that we have the right to look good and feel good about the way we dress and live. In other words, the pleasure of life is something that we have a right to, It's almost a default that deep down within us is this idea that we should get what we want, not because uh, it's something, a bonus or not because it's a gift, but because it's a right. Every Australian has the right to look good and feel good about the way they dress and live. Uh, Welcome to 2020 because we have had a pleasure deficit in 2020. Uh, With the lockdown in COVID around Australia and around the world, Uh, things became very pressured when people found that the things that they enjoyed to do, the things that they found helped them let off steam, they were no longer allowed to do. In Australia, during Easter, uh, Lifeline, the crisis phone line, had more than 3,000 calls on one day, on Easter Sunday, the most calls they have ever had on any single day in all the years they've been running. And John Brogdon, uh, the chair uh, of Lifeline, said that, Uh, The problem is that people have had time to think. Usually they're going away at this time of the year during Easter, but now they've had time to think about things. Usually the idea of pleasure or leisure or things, and leisure is connected to pleasure in many ways. Um, We haven't been able to do those things, and so suddenly you're left there with your thoughts. What's going on? And we've had so much disposable income in our nation that things like the leisure and pleasure industries uh, have boomed. These are not things we say are luxuries in our life, but they are necessities. And in one sense, uh, they're necessities because we do two things. We binge on work and we go really, really hard on work because work in our current context is not simply a means of material production, but it's a means of identity production. You pour a lot of time and energy into work but then you binge on pleasure or leisure. You go hard at leisure and pleasure in order to sort of compensate for the binging at work. But if you remove pleasure from that equation, what you've got is this daily grind, but it doesn't seem to have much to offset it. We need the bread and circuses, so to speak, to keep us going. But when the bread and circuses become the primary thing in life, when they become the thing we look forward to and without them, we feel bereft or we don't know where we're going, uh, then that's a sign of trouble. Now, the idea of pleasure has another word around it, which is a bit more of a classical word than simply using the word pleasure. And I want to show you another another slide that I think actually speaks to this, if I can get it to come up. Um, This one here. Um, This is a classic uh, picture, isn't it? Look at that uh, young lad there uh, trying to suppress all of the water coming out of a fire hydrant. But in a book called... uh, why we, uh, why we want what we want or desire, why we want what we want. Uh, William Irvine says this in a chapter called uh, Religion or Religious Ideas, Religious Advice. He said, almost all religions require adherence to curb their desires and almost all religious religions offer advice on how desire can be curbed. Almost all of them are offering advice on how you curb desires. The problem is with that fire hydrant if, is that, uh, in one sense, uh, desire is coming up out of us in so many areas, the desire for pleasure or, or something like that, that it's like trying to suppress or curb a fire hydrant. It's almost as if resistance is futile. Uh, we can't actually suppress it. And if you come to religion and you come to biblical Christianity and say that the point is to suppress or curb your desires then we've got a problem, don't we? Uh, Because it's saying that uh, people don't want their desires or their pleasures suppressed, and the point of religion is to suppress them. So why would you go anywhere near religion? In fact, today it's seen as dangerous in this age of authenticity. It's a challenge that in the you-do-you culture, you shouldn't be suppressing desire. In order to suppress desire, what you're doing is not being true to yourself. So is Christianity this immovable object and desire and pleasure is this irresistible force and they're meeting each other and they're pushing hard against each other? Now, I use the word irresistible there deliberately because irresistible has two meanings. Is it desire irresistible in that you can't stop it and that Christianity is pressing up against it? Or is desire irresistible in that I don't want it to be stopped when we say we find something Irresistible. We don't simply mean it can't be stopped. It means we don't want it to be stopped, in that sense. So you get the idea in this statement that the point of religion is to suppress your desire, but at the same time, we're full of desires that are coming up to the surface. And part of what we've seen in our culture at the moment is the mental health wave in the last six to 12 months has been the removal of any of the pleasurable outlets that people have normally gone to. We're in psychological desire lockdown as well. And as I said, we're used to these two things binge work and binge pleasure, letting off steam. And in a, an increasingly difficult world, we're not able to hold those two things in tension. Now, we know that that's the way the world works. You think of a car ad, how it pitches at our desires. And some of the best car ads, or some of the most enticing, I suppose, has a very sexy woman driving up to a very sexy office where a very sexy man jumps in from his very sexy job into the car. It's Friday afternoon. He's hit a hard week at work and his reward is going off with this sexy woman uh, down the coast to a beautiful um, sort of beach house and the helicopter panoramic shot of the car driving around the coastline is saying, you have earned this. Uh, you have worked hard and you can now settle back into your desires because that's what it means for you to do you. You've earned these things and they are now yours to have but I want to revisit that whole idea of desire suppression for a moment, because if the Bible is about suppressing our desires, then we've got a problem. We've got a big problem because that doesn't seem to be what people want to do. And that doesn't seem to be quite how desire or the need for pleasure is actually, uh, unpacked in our, in our world. And I'm going to look at this passage in a second, but I want to look at the big passage or the big picture of the Bible in that the total story of the Bible does not say, contrary to what William Irvin would say, that desire is a problem. The Bible never says that desires are a problem. The Bible only says that misdirected desires or disordered desires or disordered pleasures are the problem. The Bible, in fact, teaches that humans were created to desire and that in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God creates this garden And he fills it full of desirous things, not least of all, the man and the woman for each other. But it also tells us in Genesis 2, 9, that every tree in the garden that God created was good and it was pleasant to look at and it was good to eat. Now, we're used to thinking that the story of the Garden of Eden, if you know it, and there's a tree in there called the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil, and Eve, the woman in the garden, sees the tree and sees that it's good-looking and good to eat. We go, wow, why did God do that to that tree? He put a desire in their path uh, and then the woman ate of the fruit and then all the consequences happened. But Genesis 2.9 says that every tree was good. All of the fruit of every tree was good to eat. Unless God had created desire into the system, uh, that wouldn't be the case. The Bible is not against desire, it's against misdirected pleasures and disordered desires. And the passage today is something of a continuation of that issue, misdirected desire. And it's the first thing that you get is a man asking questions of Jesus. Now, in the context of this passage in Luke 12, uh, Jesus has been painting a big picture of who God is and saying that God is important above all things. And then a clunky question from the back of the room is excuse me Jesus excuse me someone in the crowd said to him it says in verse 13 teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me you think oh man if if you were uh, preaching in a church or speaking at a conference and you had a topic that was on point and someone puts up their hand at the back and asks a really you know odd question you'd think am i getting through to anyone <laughs> but Jesus replied it says verse 14 man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? This man is pitching his own desires. He's listening to Jesus' sober words about being God-focused, and then he cuts to his true desire, and his true desire is stuff. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There's stuff I want, the stuff my brother has, probably his older brother uh, who will get all of the inheritance, and he is asking for it because he wants to fulfill his desires. And Jesus then gives him a warning. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, Jesus uses the word greed there. He doesn't use the word need. Now, he's pitching this to this man saying, I'm picking something up about greeding you. It's not as if the man is saying, I'm poverty struck and I need something. He's saying, I want my brother to divide the surplus with me. It's about greed. And the Bible has a lot to say about greed, but all kinds of greed. Greed isn't just about money. It's about how can I get the things I want in such a way that is dishonoring uh, because I I want them anyway, but I'll do whatever I need to get them or all encompassing. These things uh, complete me. These things are the you-do-you moment where I get to get what I want. And Jesus is calling him out. And that's critical. He says life does not consist in an abundance of possession. When life consists of our desires or our desire for our desires, these things become gods. These things become the idols in our lives that direct us. And an idol is simply the thing in our life towards which we pay all of our attention and worth. And we know what's an idol in our life when it gets taken away and we become despairing or enraged or life has no meaning or whatever. In other words, 2020. (laughs) We see how people have responded to 2020 when things that they want are taken away from them. At verse 16, we see that this godless response of this man who asked the question is continued into the parable that Jesus speaks. Uh, He told them this parable in verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Jesus is picking up here the response of the godless person when their desires are misdirected. Now, a few things here. Notice it says that the ground yielded a great crop, an abundant harvest. Straight away we realise that this man is not a self-made man. The whole idea of this work hard, binge hard on, you know, on pleasure. So binge on work, binge on pleasure is based often in the sense that I deserve this. I've done this hard yards and I deserve this. But straight away in this passage, you see that it's the ground that's doing the work here. It's slightly undermining this whole man's sense of I'm the worker here this is not about getting what I deserve, but it says the ground yielded it. Yet he takes this as a reward myself moment. But I also want to pick up that in this uh, translation we have, which is the NIV translation, uh, it doesn't pick up quite the term that's used. The term that's used is the land of a rich man yielded abundantly. And in Israel, the term the land, that's a deep term. That's a covenant relationship term that God brings his people from slavery in Egypt and brings them to the promised land and he gives every family and every tribe an inheritance in the land. There is a covenant relationship with the land that God's people have in Israel. They are to steward the gift of God that's been given to them and God has said it will yield abundantly because I am blessing you. So the first thing that you think you would do if you were given an abundant harvest in the promised land is to thank God for it. It would be to say, before I pull down my barns and build bigger, I'm not going to have to make them too big because I'm going to give a tithe to God. I'm going to thank God for what He has done for me and give some. The other thing you would do in Israel if you were a covenant member of God's people was to serve others out of your abundance. You would be grateful to God and you would be generous to others. But this man, no. He sees this as an opportunity for only pleasure. Now, pleasure is a good thing, but only pleasure, disordered, misdirected pleasure is not. Verse 18, then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. Binge work, binge pleasure. No need to worship God gratefully or serve other people generously. This man has broken his covenant relationship with God, with the land and with other people. And his focus is simply on pleasure. And I think that's a a trap that pleasure does, Uh, our misdirected pleasure, our desire for something that we truly want can see us break many relationships, break many covenant relationships, and worst of all, break a relationship with the one who gave us things to enjoy. The Bible tells us that all good gifts come from God. Yet this man, as we read it, is having a circular conversation. It literally says he thought to himself, self what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Here's the thing when you get into a discussion with yourself about what pleasures you should have, you're pretty convincing. You can convince yourself of almost anything once you're in a circular conversation. We maintain, contain, we maintain control of the conversation when it comes to our desires, and we can create an, an argument that we can justify in every way. That's exactly what happens. That's what we do when we fall into a trap of going after a misdirected desire. That is what adultery does when someone is unfaithful to their spouse. They're not having conversations with lots of people about how to do it. They're having a conversation with themselves. How can I get this misdirected desire? And more to the point, how can I make this misdirected desire something for me that I can justify? But there's a hint of trouble in his very words. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah in chapter 22, judgment is coming on Israel. Judgment is coming. And the people in Israel are sitting in Jerusalem and they're going, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, they're saying, let's just hit the pleasure button really really hard because We're done for. God's people are ignoring the judgment that's coming and saying, we're just going to go hell for leather on pleasure at the moment because we're doomed anyway. Now, if you've seen a a famous movie called Downfall, a German movie about the last days of Hitler's life in the bunker in Berlin before the Allies arrive, it's called Downfall. What you see is not dozens and dozens of people repenting or putting things in order in life, or sorting out relationships, you see parties, you see sex, drink, absolute chaos. You see pleasure without any reference to God, because they are going, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. The allies are coming, but we're not going to think about it. We're just going to hit the pleasure button real hard. This man hasn't even thought about that. He has not even thought that death may come And what do we hear? God cuts him off. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, says Jesus, with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. One of my favourite footballers when I was growing up watching, a soccer player, so a game of two halves, Uh, was a great black player called Cyril Regis. And Cyril Regis was a man who uh, bore the taunts of racist people on the terraces with good humour and grace and fantastic goals. And he was one of three great black players in that side that he played in in England at the time. Uh, One of them, the other one who was a good friend of his, was called Laurie Cunningham. And Cyril and Laurie sucked the marrow out of life because they were famous... They made a lot of money and they uh, just had everything they wanted. They were very talented footballers. And Cyril eventually, uh, uh, Laurie found himself playing in Spain with Real Madrid. And during the off season, Cyril would go to Spain and do what young footballers during the off season would do partied with Laurie. And one day they flipped the car that they were driving in and both crawled out and escaped. And Cyril didn't think anything about it. But two years later, Laurie flipped the car again on the way home from a party and died instantly. And Cyril suddenly found himself asking questions. He said, Laurie had fame, women, money, talent, cars, attention, and he took none of it with him. What must life be about? And Cyril went on a search that led him to Jesus. And he found the locus of pleasure in his life in Jesus and redirected his desires, sorted his life out, and became a beacon of love and community and service to people in the football world, the church world, and in the black community. He found the locus of his pleasure in Jesus. Psalm 16 in the Old Testament, the Song Book of Israel, has these words at the end of that psalm, in verse 11. In your presence, O God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Most people, even Laurie Cunningham, would settle for 60% pleasure for 80 years. And what they get offered in Psalm 16 with God is desire directed and to the right end and completed in God. 100% fullness of joy pleasure into eternity. Two years ago, Cyril went to church at the age of 59, came home, fell asleep and never woke up. He died of a heart attack in his sleep. But everything that he desired, he now has because his desires were directed in the right place. And the night that his soul was required of him, he was the wisest man and not a fool. That is how it is for those who store up things towards God without having to be worrying about being rich towards themselves in the pleasures they seek. Thanks for listening, guys. Love to have some questions.
0: Thanks, Steve. Um, Everyone, please keep um, sending your questions in through the Q&A button below. Uh, We've had one come in already, and um, this is, Regarding, I think, verse 13, the premise of the parable that Jesus is telling, Uh, so even if the man who asked Jesus the question was motivated by money, surely his question could be about fairness. So what is wrong with that?
1: Um, Well, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't uh, say it's not about fairness. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? So Jesus is saying if you're looking for fairness, then that's not what we're on about here. So Jesus isn't even saying that you need to be fair. He's not saying that at all. He's picking up the point that I think goes to the heart of the matter that unless you're on your guard against all kinds of greed, you will put your focus on the abundance of possessions. I don't think we take that seriously enough in the West. I think what happens when we look at greed, we when we're asked are we greedy? We never compare ourselves down to those who have less than us. We always compare ourselves up to those who have more than us. And this man is saying, my brother is greedy. He will not divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus is saying, okay, let's talk about greed for a while. Let's talk about greed for a while. I think in all of the deadly sins, so to speak, greed is the one that we in the West are most blinded to. Jesus says more about greed and possessions than he does about almost anything else because those are the things in which we can find self-fulfillment they're mainline drugs they hit us straight in the in the artery and they do for us what we think pleasure should do for us they fulfill us in a way that other things often don't and I think that's part of the issue with Jesus that he cuts to the heart of the matter very quickly fairness is not the issue in fact God's not fair he doesn't deal with us fairly that's what's so good about him. He deals with this graciously, which is what this man did not have, he did not understand, the graciousness of God, I think. That's what it's saying. Um, yeah. There's another question there. Do you want me to go on with that?
0: Yeah, there is. Yeah, please do.
1: Yeah. Can you comment on Christian hedonism that says God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him? Uh, yes. that's um, John Piper says that the statement Uh, in the catechism that says what is the chief end of man the chief end of man is to glorify god and enjoy him forever he says the chief end of man is to glorify god by enjoying him forever so i think uh, god is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him um because it leaks out that uh, we were created for not just pleasure in him but for his pleasure we were created it tells us so in one sense. Uh, humans are made in the image of God. There are nearly 8 billion images of God roaming the planet. We should be able to look around at them and go, there's something about God there. And the more we glorify God in our lives, the more the image of God is reflected in us. But I think it's the most satisfying place to be, even though we don't always live like that, um, is that to be satisfied in God showcases God's goodness I think the biggest sin in the Bible in the Old Testament among the people of God was that they grumbled. You go back to the time in the desert after their freedom from slavery on their way to the promised land, and the biggest problem they had, it says it in Corinthians, they grumbled. They were not satisfied with what God had given them, the good things he had given them. They wanted, it says, the pleasures of the past. And Moses is described as the one who forsook the pleasures of sin for a season in order that he would have the riches of God. There's nowhere in the Bible that says sin isn't pleasurable. It is. It's just not going. It will just lead to death. It's when it becomes the ultimate thing that's the problem. That's key to what we understand about pleasure in the Bible. Pleasure is a good thing when it's directed in the right, uh, when it's put in the right direction. It's misordered or disordered desire that's our problem
0: Yeah, thanks so much for that, Steve. Um, That's all the time we have for questions uh, for today. But thank you so much for joining us uh, and thank you uh, for your questions. And next week, Steve will be speaking on our final topic for the series. Uh, It's you do you and spirituality. Uh, Steve, can you give us a bit of a tease on what to expect?
1: Uh, Yeah, Um, what I'm going to look at next week is uh, the highly modern way of sort of individualistic spirituality that your spirituality is this and your my spirituality is that and we can somehow uh, sort of mash them all together but also that uh, spirituality becomes about us more than it becomes about God and others and I think the Bible holds a tension uh, of what it means for us and what it means for God and what it means for others that I think we can lose sight of easily in our you do you world
0: yeah what a great topic I'll look forward to that Uh, And we look forward to everyone joining us again next week at our last Bible shot session. So we hope you have a good week and see you then.